You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Unfiltered, Joe's still new interview series in which I will be talking to people or or at least giving people a lot more time and space than they usually get so that we can find out more about them. I'm James O'Brien and this week's guest is Alistair Campbell, um, probably one of the few people who actually merits the old cliche, a man who needs no introduction. But I am keen to talk to him not just about shenanigans behind the door of 10 Downing Street, but also about some of the other uh, events and elements of his life where he's he's kind of had a ringside seat at history. And welcome to Unfiltered Alistair Campbell, our, our, our second guest, which is obviously quite an honour, and it coincides miraculously with the publication of the sixth volume oh of your God, diaries. Is that how, I, I, I had no idea. Have I just published a book, James? I didn't even know that. It made, it made all good bookshots <laughs> and even most mediocre ones. Yeah. Um, let's start, though, with where we are now and then work our way back to, to where the diaries begin in 2005. And, yeah. and where we are now, um, the, the, the day of the interview is the day after the keynote speech at the Labour Party conference. It seems, I don't know, ironic, significant or, or, or utterly meaningless that in the in the index of your diaries for 2005 to 2007, which culminate in Gordon Brown assuming the reins of power at Downing Street. A, a chap called Jeremy Corbyn doesn't even merit a single mention in the index. Nor does Theresa May. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, nor does Donald Trump, nor does Brexit. Quite uh, incredible, isn't it? Ten it years is. in which everything's been turned the world upside has changed, down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it, within the Labour Party, it means that the Labour Party has changed. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I went down for a, one day, I went to the anti-Brexit rally in, in Brighton and... Uh, it feels very different. It feels very different. It doesn't feel like the party that I was very closely involved in for those three elections that we won. Uh, and where it goes, I just don't know. I I, I bumped into this uh, young guy who was down there who was real kind of momentum, Corbyn yeah. East journey, and he sort of came and said, look, you know... Are you the enemy to people like Well, that? I don't think I... I don't think I am that much, a bit, I guess, for some of them. But this guy actually said, he said, look, I, I don't like Blair, but I actually quite like you. And <laughs> I don't understand why you don't get right behind Jeremy. And I said, well, because I've got doubts. I've got big doubts. I've got, and also I'm still, to be absolutely honest, as you know, I'm a bit fanatical about Brexit, hate it. Sure. Uh, I'm still very angry that he just didn't get stuck into that campaign and the way he gets in, stuck into the... Isn't, is it, I, I mean possible that he's played a blinder on that bearing in mind we don't know yet for sure what the final position would be but by not actually going all in on either side yeah well he's maybe, po- he's possibly maybe. kept all of the people happy I, well i don't know he didn't keep me happy in the either in the referendum or in the election but uh i think that look i certainly thought at the election that this kind of facing both ways mm. which i felt he was would be a problem for him but it maybe it helped him but i think when it comes to where we are now uh, I do think Brexit is a catastrophe, and I just feel that our approach at the conference was was sort of to go along with it. Yes, to say the Tories are useless. Yes, to say they're terrible. But constantly this line that you know, well, it's happened. We've got to kind of you know make make the best of it. And I just feel that it's so potentially catastrophic for the country that you know leaders have to be saying that. Although the priority, as you know better than anyone, is to get elected first and then worry about what you do with the power. Do you think he's going to be prime minister? Uh, a year ago, I'd have said no way. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think now it's possible. More more than, what, 50%? I don't know. Come I on. I don't know. No, I don't believe... I, really? I mean, 
No, I can't play that game really because I don't know. I really don't know. I think that we're look, we're in definitely in anything goes territory. Yes. Right? So anything can happen. Funnily enough, Fiona, my partner, she said this morning, maybe the conventional wisdoms are always wrong at the moment, and the new conventional wisdom will become that Corbyn is going to be Prime Minister, and then we'll be wrong about that. So we'll start rebelling against uh, the that So Corbyn's I don't know, but I, I think that uh, and and I do, you know I, don't, I can't pretend. I mean, I, I I find it very difficult ever not to vote Labour, but I can't pretend that I find a lot of what he stands for attractive, but a lot of it deeply worrying. I thought, you know, just to give you one small example in that speech yesterday, all that kind of loads of things that yeah, great, have that, have this, have that, but it's there's still very little detail as to how you go about that. And also I think on foreign policy, okay, you know, I know they get an easy round of applause by going on about Tony Blair's Ill, ill-advised foreign interventions and what have you. But the fact is, that's his words, not mine, by the mm, way. Yeah, of course. Uh, but the, the fact is that to go through a speech like that yesterday where he's kind of doing a kind of tour d'horizon of the world, but Putin doesn't even get mentioned, mm. uh, where... And I, I sort of... I just feel that his worldview... Uh, I think the domestic stuff is very attractive at a superficial level. But, you know, we all, we all want peace. We all want harmony. We all want everybody to be, to be happy and have a job. To be a mother love and No sadness pie. in their lives. Sure. But show how you're going to do it. And, and when are you going to do things that people don't like? When are you going well, to exactly, break some eggs? Well, exactly, leadership ultimately is about, the, it's about the difficult stuff. Which comes across clearly in this um, volume of diaries. You, you mentioned there the differences, the things that you don't think Corbyn's on board with that you consider to be part of New Labour's success. There's, there's parts in the diary where Gordon Brown sounds closer to Corbyn than to Blair on, on that the, the sort of hat-trick of low-tax aspiration and friendliness to business, which you pick out a few times as being areas, as, as the sort of um, handover of power was being wrestled with. Those are areas... Well, that, that Tony was more committed to low-taxation. Much yeah. more than Brown. Uh, I think that's probably true, but I don't look. You've got to remember, first, uh, one of the things that the Corbyn style of the Labour Party really disliked about New Labour was the fact that Gordon made a stick to very tough spending limits in the first couple of years. I think Gordon was to the left of Tony, is to the left of Tony, but not, not, not by nearly as much as uh, as Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonnell. I mean, I think they're in a very, very different place. John McDonnell, most budgets used to put out a complete denunciation of uh, of what Gordon was. Is he was bright? McDonnell. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, look, they've 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 got. I don't know them that well. Sure. They, they've been. I mean, they've been around for a long time. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting when Theresa May was in Florence the other day. She, she, she was talking about Brexit. You know, we need a more creative solutions. <laughs> I did feel at the last election, I felt it really felt to me like we had two, two competing visions of the past being debated. No real sense of what the future's about. And I said, you know, I don't want to slag them off the whole time because it just gets boring and you, you come across sure. as bitter. But I've, I feel that I felt that there was a, something just a bit unreal about a lot of the stuff being said this week didn't feel like it was rooted in and also when you get out of that bubble uh you know is the ground really moving towards that more left-wing politics i don't know i don't feel it nationalization is more popular than it's been since wilson yeah yeah but that's i think in part with a lot of these things what you're getting and i think a lot of in a funny sort of way at the moment Theresa may's best friend is jeremy corbyn and vice versa Theresa May is gets a lot of strength with the Tory party by 
being there and by people saying, listen, if we do her in, he's in, right? And likewise, I think with Jeremy Corbyn, a lot of his strength comes from the fact that people look at Theresa May and think, oh my God, is she the best we can do? So it's not as exactly as, it, as if we've got these two titans mm. with great new philosophies and visions for the world. Is there a great new philosophy in the wings? Cause, I mean, because Tony Blair would be the last prime minister that people genuinely believed was offering up something very, very different to well, what Corbyn it is before. offering something different. Sure, no doubt about that. But different is it that it's not? You know, one of one of the things he prides himself on is it's not that different to everything that he's always believed. It's not like a new vision for the world. And I thought that thing, he, this this idea he had about, he seemed to be saying, you know, we're going to tax robots or you know, I didn't quite understand how that was well, going to you know, work. You tax the company that makes the robot. Right, because they're putting people out of work. Yes. Uh, I'm interested in how that's going to work. Sure. But I, I, that whole thing I felt during the election, I mean, the next industrial revolution is going to be about robotics and artificial intelligence. And you didn't hear any of that during the election campaign from either side. So I don't know. It's going to be, I still find it hard. I, I, I you know, but maybe I've just maybe I've just lost my finger off the pulse. I mean, I, I felt I always felt I used to have it on the pulse, but you know, a couple of days after I was down in Brighton, I, I've done. I'll tell you what I've done this week. I've spoken yeah. to a, a big high tech company event. I've spoken to the school. I've done a military thing with a military establishment. Uh, I've done a couple of other business. I've done a charity, and I always ask everywhere I go at the moment. I ask these three questions. I'll do it again tonight when I've got this yeah. dude down the road. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about Trump? Optimistic or pessimistic about Brexit? And do you think Jeremy Corbyn is the next Prime Minister? Okay. Now, the, the pessimism about Trump is overwhelming. Sure. The pessimism about Brexit is very, very high, uh, including, I think, with people who voted Leave. Yes, There's sure. a lot of worry. And I'd say for Jeremy Corbyn, a year ago, if you asked that question, you got a laugh. Yeah. Now you get maybe 20% of people saying, I think you will. Only 20%. Maybe it'll be higher this week because of all the kind of noise that there's been. Sure. But I think there's still a lot of people who think, I'm not sure about that guy. Uh, and certainly the military establishment were. That's a, that's a slight, it's <laughs> probably a rhetorical question with them, though, isn't it? Has he got well, a plan? I mean, because you're a strategist, and, and you're not just a strategist. You're also very much a sort of move, moving on a sixpence type reactor. Is there a plan there, or have they sort of stumbled into this success? Well, first I mean, from of all, the point of getting elected as Labour leader, because that was kind of oh, a yeah. conflation of coincidence. Wasn't it was, it? it was. I don't think he ever expected it to happen. No, nor did anyone who, who, who promoted him or nominated him. No, but since, see, since I, then, I, since then, is there a plan? I look. I don't know. No. I don't know them well enough. They, they've certainly. Look, my big thing: previous book winners, objective, strategy, tactics. I think their objective hasn't until recently been to get in power. I think it's been much more, and it's still a big objective, is to get control of the Labour Party. Well, they're doing that. You showed, you saw at the conference, yeah, they've got control of the Labour Party. That must hurt. Well, it does a bit, yeah. but, you know, there you go. Life, the world moves. Uh, but I think in terms of, are they now driven by the objective for him to be in power? Much more than they were. Yeah. The strategy, as far as I can define it, is basically to say that the world has changed and it's moving to us. Uh, so it's a much more avowedly left-wing, high tax, high regulation, tax and spend, all that stuff. Uh, and we'll see. I think it only wins because Theresa May is pretty dire and Brexit is a 
looming catastrophe. Which you either talk about endlessly or not at all. And they kind of went for the not at all yesterday. Yeah. Um, you mentioned winners. There's a moment in the in the volume of this volume of diaries where one of your confidants um, suggests that you can't spend the rest of your life interviewing Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was a very good point. Uh, and actually, that was Charlie Fortner, uh, who I was speaking to this morning. And the other one in there is Matthew Freud, who says, you can't spend the rest of your life just being Alistair Campbell. What do you think that meant? <laughs> I think it meant that I was kind of riding around doing different things, but actually, you know, what you're doing, nothing much. You're just sort of being. Yes. who you are and what you are. Uh, I've, I've done okay on it. Uh, <laughs> so you didn't take his advice. You have just no, rolled around I, I, being Alistair Campbell. It's not that I haven't <laughs> taken the advice and I haven't taken it to heart. I have, but I've never resolved it. Because he meant a mission. He, he meant you need a new mission. Yeah, and, yeah. And you, they both did. Right. They both did. And, and I've never found that. No. And so far as I've got one, it's probably the stuff that I do in mental health, the campaigning, yes. but I don't do it full time. Nothing like it. And I think what's happened is that having gone through journalism in a very intense way, then politics in a very intense way, if you'd have said to me when I was 25, you know, when you get into your 40s, 50s, 60s, you won't have a job, you'll just sort of do lots of different things, you'll write loads of books, you'll do loads of speeches, you'll do charity stuff, you'll swan around the world kind of pontificating. <laughs> and I said, well, that's just not me. But it's what I've become. Yes. And I think partly... I mean, I, I'm torn all the time. In fact, the, I think one of the most interesting new characters in this volume, because we're into, what, volume six now, yeah. is my psychiatrist, who I, I finally, during this period, realised that all this stuff going on in my head, I need help. And he has been a great what help. What sort of stuff? Uh, well, depression, most obviously. But I think also the conflicts in my head. Which, which do tear at me a lot. I mean, what is between, there's no doubt, I think a lot of people have this, I've got a conflict between self and service. I've got a, I've got a conflict between being well-known and, uh, and popular and actually not wanting to be well-known and not giving a damn mm. about who, what anybody thinks. That's a thing that goes on. Uh, I've got a conflict between the need to be needed and also the need to be free. These are these are things that go on inside my head all the time, uh, and I think they do sometimes trigger into, you know, mental instability and, and because while depression. everybody or most people will recognise two out of those three, the, the, I guess the public profile thing is a more a rarefied club. It's the clamour, it's the volume that, that these battles reach that causes problems. Yeah, and it's also I think it's also for me sometimes a, a kind of loss of perspective on them. You know that I mean. You, you must be losing perspective, as happens sometimes with me, when I literally can't sleep because I'm yeah. thinking about them. Uh, and, and I think the deep one, and I get this all the time. So, like, uh, when I was down in Brighton, I, I spoke at this anti-Brexit rally, and, I'm, and, and, and I'll be honest, I didn't want to hang around. I thought, this is no longer... We're not in charge here. They don't sure. There's no mission. Around. Not, I mean, apart from stopping no, Brexit, but I that's could, not exactly No, and, and, I, and I could have hung around for that, but I'm not there to sort of, you know, so I just felt I'll get home and, and what have you. And I was way, on the way up to the the station and this, this guy stopped me and he said, listen, listen, he says, he was a bit like Charlie Fortner and Matthew Fortner. He said, listen, <laughs> there's not many people who know as much about politics as you. There's not many people who can communicate like you do. You've got to get back stuck in. You've got to get a seat. You've got to do this. And I... And I feel every time that happens, and it does happen quite a lot, yes. I feel really, really bad. Because because of the duty. 
Yeah, because I think they've got a point. You see, that's a fascinating but conflict. But I can't do it. But that's, that's arrogance versus modesty, isn't it? Because some parts of you think like there, there is a role I could fill that it doesn't seem anybody else could. And at the same time, that's quite a conceited thought to have. It's quite a conceited thought. But if you've got... Like, one of the big tensions of this book yeah. is you've got the Prime Minister and the next Prime Minister both saying to you, I can't do this without you. Yes, of course. In terms, they're saying they're that. both right, probably. Well, Certainly in Blair's case. I mean, Brown needed you to... Keep Blair sweet more than to keep him. Yeah, and no, also he also think, needed your advice on being a bit more human. Perhaps. Yeah, and also I think just in terms of, you know, Gordon trusted my judgment on a lot of things and on words and speeches and media and that stuff. So, and but, you know, David, the psychiatrist, one of the things he says, he says, look, when they're doing that, they're feeding your demon. Because yeah. your demon is basically saying, only I can do this. And that is what makes you then go and do things to excess and then you put it at risk your health and your relationships and all that stuff. But that makes it so weird then that you mentioned Fiona, your partner earlier. She, she said in a recent interview that the word you hate most in the English language is contented. And yet everything you've just said suggests that you're on some mad quest for content. No, I'm not. You see, that is the conflict. Clearly. That is the conflict. <laughs> I'm not con- I hope you're paying your psychiatrist a uh, lot. I know, I'm not. <laughs> it's true. My mother, who she died a few years ago now, but she, she used to say, she said, Alistair, why can't you just be content? And I said, because I don't want to be content. Because that to me is complacency. So you think content means bored? No, I think content. I can be. I can have. I can have great moments when Burnley score. Yeah, I'm wild, right? Sure. When I'm listening to a beautiful piece of music, I'm in the moment. I like it. If I've got a good book on the go, that's great. But that's not happiness to me. Happiness to me is what you kind of, what you hopefully, as you sort of in your dotage, you'll be able to look back on your life and say, well, that was a bloody good life. I did loads. My kids are good. Uh, I had loads of amazing experiences. I, I, I've done stuff. I'm happy about that. So, like, you, you know, with the diaries, I mean, less so this one. Oh, actually, no, this this one is quite intense. But I remember when, yes, the Blair, when the Blair years first came out, which was the first one, and I was doing an interview in Ireland, and this guy says, I've got to say to you, so you don't seem very happy doing this job. And I said, no, I think that's a fair judgment, but I'm very happy that I did it. I don't quite follow that. I wasn't it's, it's almost like you're living, you're looking at your life from the outside. I'm happy, pleased, contented yeah. Yeah. that I played a fairly significant role in helping Labour to win three elections, in helping Tony Blair to do peace in Northern Ireland, in helping uh, manage a transition between two, two, I think, good politicians as prime sure. ministers. I'm happy that I did all that. A lot of the time doing it, I wasn't enjoying it. So when my mum used to say, why can't you just be content? I'd say, because I'm not. Is it, is it, I just have an image there, as you said that, of, of an actor who is physically sick with stage fright before they get onto the stage. So clearly they're not remotely enjoying, but something happens when they're on the stage, when they come out of themselves, and that is why they do the job that they do. No, I, did, no, I don't think that was me. Because right. I, I, I didn't feel... Like, I think when I was doing the briefings... And all You're that, never nervous? Uh, no, you get nervous. I, I, I force myself to be nervous sometimes. Yeah, because of the adrenaline. Yeah, be, because when it matters, I think you've got to sometimes signal that something matters more than other things. Uh, I'd say the last time I was really nervous 
in a I mean I have nervousness like which is kind of proper anxiety yes. but that is often ridiculous and irrational and totally irrational so like I mean <laughs> one of our recent sleepless nights I'm going to Glasgow next week right yeah I'm going to be there for three days I spent hours in my head it was how many shirts I'm going to take and which shirts and it's just and you can't get it out of your head. And that's a sort of ridiculous form of anxiety. The last time I felt genuinely nervous for myself was when I gave evidence to the Iraq inquiry. And again, I think that was partly to... It was because it mattered. It was important. Every word, if I had one word out of place. Uh, whereas the Levison inquiry, I wasn't nervous at all. Uh, you didn't I mean, have as much at stake in it. No, but it, but you, it's still kind of you know it's live on telly yes. and it's a big deal. And, but the so the Iraq inquiry, I, I, I felt genuinely nervous. I think it helped me in a way. But I took my son with me for moral support, for moral support. For uh, I, I was worried again. One of the sort of irrational anxieties that sort of I was worried that uh, I don't know somebody would provoke me. Uh, going in, a journalist or whatever, just get and I, I, I realise if I had him, if I had Rory there, I, I just know if I know what I'm like. If I if I get fired up for something, I can just look at him and I can you know I know it should be the other way around, but I can <laughs> I can sort of calm myself down. Did he know that's what his role was? Uh, pretty much. I think yeah. he was interested in going oh, right, anyway. Of course, it's history unfolding. Uh, but funnily enough, I did exactly the same when I did when the first volume of Diaries came out, which was a big big thing it was yeah, like legal sure. news it was ridiculous and I did the Today program with John Humphreys and it was the first my first interaction with the Today program since the whole row about Andrew Gilligan the Iraq dossier and Gosh, all that yeah. and it was and again I, I was I wasn't it wasn't that I was nervous but I knew it was going to be a moment so I took Rory with me again uh, and he's just he's just you know my kids are all they're all great but he just he's just got a very nice sort of calming manner that's uh, come from his mum well, yeah, but no, he's got my temper as well. Uh, oh, yeah, if, if any of these BBC people had, you know, got out of line. And do you know what? It was the only time that I could ever remember that the interview went through 8.30, went through the weather, went through it's the sport. And, and, the, and, the, and the through the glass, or the other side of the glass, it was just, I've never seen so many suits in for an interview in my life, all the BBC there. It was ridiculous. So, uh, but I get nervous. When else do I get nervous? I get nervous for my kids if my kids are doing stuff, but myself, you know, if, if things like this or things sure. like doing a speech or, uh, it's, it, I've got to make myself nervous to be nervous because you're in your comfort zone. When that that 25 year old Alistair Campbell you mentioned a moment ago, who frankly would have found it impossible to believe that you're 60 now. I was 60 this year. 60 yeah. this year would be doing what you're doing now. Would would they have found it plausible that at 40 you'd be essentially crossing over from journalism into? Let's call it news management for the sake of argument. Politics. Well, all right, but your, your, your job, your, yeah, but your job was to try to direct yeah. the news, to try uh, to control yeah, the news. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Would have been surprised. No, wouldn't have been. Surprised. You could see you, that, that that wasn't a massive departure for you. No, in fact, funny enough, uh, I can't remember when it was. It's really strange. This. Go on. Well, when I had my breakdown, I had a breakdown in the eighties. So I was I was twenty, eighty six, twenty nine. Okay. So I'd, I'd been quite a high flyer, rising up through the mirror, went to today, had this breakdown. And after it, um, I went off with Fiona to France. And we hadn't had any kids by then. 
And I wrote, I sat down and I wrote a novel. I was I was coming out of this breakdown. I was I'd been psychotic. I was you know, it was quite heavy, and I wrote this novel, and it was, it just sort of poured out of me, absolutely poured out of me. Now, the main, uh, the two the two main characters, were a singer called Rory, which is what we subsequently, our son yeah. was called Rory, first son, and the other one was a Downing Street press secretary. And the Downey Street press secretary uh, was a kind of really malevolent, <laughs> manipulative, uh, controlling figure who felt that this Rory McBride guy, who was a pop singer, it was like a kind of cross between Paul McCartney, Bono and Bob Geldof, who, who became somebody with real political power. Wow. Okay. And this would be about the time, a bit after Ugly Rumours, a bit after Tony Blair. Oh, way after that. Way after that. Uh, But it became, and anyway, so I wrote this novel, and a lot of it was about my breakdown and and all this stuff going on. So what happened was that the the, the Downey Street press secretary, he sort of organized for this person basically to be destroyed psychologically. Okay. That was the story. Now, fast forward. So what? Just by way of uh, yeah. so there's people often say it's amazing you and Fiona are still together, and they're always thinking about her staying with me. Sure. It was just when the Amstrad was happening. I'd re- I wrote it all longhand, shorthand. I then typed it all up. Fiona read it, and she pressed the wrong button, and we lost the whole thing. What eighty thousand, hundred thousand words? I don't know what it was. Whatever. Oh shebang! The wow. whole thing. It's the only time in my life I've ever curled up in a fetal ball oh. and put my head under the, the blanket. She was pretty devastated, but we and we couldn't find it. It's gone. Anyway, probably for the best. Well, but fast forward into this new weird yeah. life I read now. My first novel, a lot of it was in there. Really, all in the mind. It was. It was, and it wasn't about Downey Street, but a lot of the psychiatric stuff, yeah. and the depression, the psychosis, the breakdown. The it was in there. So. I think it was for a it was for a reason, but while we're talking about that, I can't remember. So we were just talking about the um, I can't remember either. Yeah. But you took me with you on that journey. Okay. We're talking about the notion of um, nervousness originally, and you then I asked you whether your twenty five year old self could have seen oh, you yeah. as a spin doctor, and then you- yeah, that's right. So so I would say that whole thing about I was a journalist, and I was never really a proper journalist once I got to the mirror. I was very political. I didn't lie. I didn't make stories up like people do today. But you were on a mission. But I was biased. Yeah. I was avowedly pro-Labour. I didn't like the Thatcher government. And I thought journalism could play its part in that. But I got closer and closer to politics. So, for example, people probably forget this, but the famous uh, Hugh Hudson election broadcaster, Neil Kinnock, yeah. walking on, I, I was part of that. I, I, I worked with I didn't know that. I did the interviews with Neil for it. Right. Is that that's not proper journalism, is it? You know, I'm, I'm writing about the guy. I, I even covered the film when it was launched, but actually, I was part of it, so I was very committed. And I think I did start to see. I was so close to politics and, and covering it so intensely and so closely. I started to see two things. One, if you really want to get in, make a difference, you've got to get involved properly, jump the fence. And funny enough, I I, th- I don't know who knows. I think if John Smith hadn't died, yeah. It's possible that at the election after I tried to have got a seat, I was starting to think about that, but then he died. 
Tony Espich worked for him and, and, uh, and that was opportunities that. presented themselves. Would that be, I read um, former Daily Mirror editor Mike Malloy's autobiography the other day and I think he, that French trip with Fiona, would that be when he, he found you busking with your bagpipes because you, you'd, yeah, run, out, that you'd was, run out of money? No, that was, uh, <laughs> that was subsequent to that. Was it? Uh, was it? Hold on, hold on, hold on. It was definitely France. This seems no, about was the it? right no, era. It was before. I oh, was it, it really? Was before, okay. yeah. But Fiona was around though, because she was going around with the cat. No, Fiona a... refused to go around with the cat. <laughs> Fiona refused. That was because I think I, Malloy's <laughs> printed the legend then, rather than the no. Lines. The thing about the thing about it was the most extraordinary thing. And again, you know, life is so much about luck, isn't it? Yeah. I, we were young reporters. I was on the Mirror, just started really. Fiona was on the Express, and we weren't poor. Uh, we had, you know, decent salaries, mm. but I actually liked busking. So we go on holiday, I'd play my bagpipes, i get them out, and, and Fiona just couldn't, she hated doing this, and <laughs> she wouldn't do it. So the next thing I know, there's this tap on my shoulder, and it's Mike Malloy, who, I barely knew him. I was a junior reporter. And he was the editor of the and Mirror. And he was the editor yeah. of the Mirror, and we ended up basically having a holiday together Fantastic. with the kids. And we, we saw, we, we, we're still, sadly, sadly, his wife's dead now, That's but right, yeah. the, the girls we see, and Mike's a great friend, and, and, it, and it, yeah, that was just a total stroke of luck. And funny enough, Fiona, one of the reasons Fiona said, I'm not going to do this bloody hat thing, <laughs> is because she said she actually said, Larry Lamb, who's her editor, sometimes comes down on a holiday. What if he sees me begging? <laughs> right, next thing, my editor does see me begging, thinks it's hilarious, <laughs> and we've become great mates. You, um, I, I, d- d- there's a possibility reading all the diaries, particularly as they get to the later areas, where, where there are stories of relationships. They're not, they're not actually political pot boilers. They're, they're, there's revelations in there because you were very close to power, but you seem to be most interested in your relationships. And the two key ones are with Tony Blair and with Fiona. Um, and you write very openly and honestly about your, mar- your relationship with Fiona. Were they ever jealous of each other? Can you imagine her being jealous of him? Was he ever jealous of her? No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't mean in a homoerotic sense no. or anything like that. I just mean that the, that 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 sense of your focus being on him and being a little bit resentful whenever it had to be directed anywhere else. I don't think so, but I think that he... I mean, Tony, I think... I remember Peter Mandelson said once said that, you know, one of Tony's great strengths is incredibly selfish, but nobody realises it. Yeah. Uh, he does get what he wants, you know, in terms of, and he did certainly back then. Uh, he got the people he wanted to work for him. He built the team that he wanted. And he would sometimes, I mean, I, again, I say this in, in the diaries, he, he would sometimes phone up, particularly at a weekend on a Saturday or a Sunday, and he'd say, listen, you're knackered, you're knackered, you've got to get a rest. Now, can you phone Robbie Cook about this? Can you phone <laughs> Gordon about this? Can you do and then, uh, no, I think, I think the... I think actually, I mean, it's great actually. It's worked out in that Tony and uh, and Fiona get on really well. Now, uh, yeah, there, there was a point where oh, she, it was terrible. She, she thought the job was killing you. Yeah, it was terrible. And so, uh, why did you carry on doing it? Well, I stopped at the end, didn't well, I? In the end, you did, but yeah. it was it was a, it was a slow it was, process. It was a slow process. I, I think it was the duty thing. I think it was. The, I think it was feeling I had to do it. Duty and a euphemism for addiction, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a form of uh, cross addiction. Yeah, to I mean, adrenaline, to, to work, power. to possibly, but certainly to, I think to this, to that sense of mission and purpose and having a real reason to exist and and feel it all the time. Uh, and I, I, I listen, I, I didn't see it at the time as closely as I see it now. Right, uh, but you know, and partly with the depression, because the thing about depression is that. You know that whole thing, you know, you always hurt the ones you love. Mm. I think 
where that comes from with me is that when I'm depressed, really depressed, I will lock myself away from all but the people that I really, 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 really trust. And that means it's a very, very small number of people. So I could spend the whole weekend not speaking to Fiona. And that to her, I realise now, is like me taking it out on her for something, which I'm not really. I'm just, I can't function properly. Whereas then she would say, yeah, but when you go into work, when Tony phones up, when Gordon phones up, when Prescott phones up, you're fine. Because Whereas, in fact, it was because she was more important to you than them. Yeah, than I'd, men. I'd say so. I'd say she, so yeah. she, he, but it didn't feel like that at the time to either of us. He said to you once, Tony Blair said to you once, you're like me. If you have no driving purpose, you are in bother, or if you're not in bother, you create some. Right, but I think that was him. That was when he was trying to get me to go back. Right. Uh, he may be right. He may be right. But, uh, I mean, you know, this period where... I'm seeing this. I'm sort of going between Tony and Gordon and the British Lions and the psychiatrist. Yeah. And there was a period I was seeing this psychiatrist a lot because it was I was really starting to get stuff out of it. And he said, look, the the he didn't say these people are using you, but he said that they they know you inside out and they know how to get you in there. Now, if you want to do it, fine, but just understand what's going on and decide what's more important. Now, I tried to have it all. Your mental health or... And, and my relationship. And your, and your relationship family, with, yeah. yeah. So I tried to have it all. I tried to have it all. So I'll pick up on that again, back back to your relationship with, with Fiona. This is, this is an incredibly powerful passage and people who haven't read your diaries and perhaps expect them to be um, a, a, a bit anarchy um, don't realise how much of yourself you lay on the page. Um, as you're doing today in this interview, despite being full of cold, Alistair, for which, for which we're very grateful. Around half five this morning, for example, I was lying there awake and just looking at Fiona, who looked totally at peace and calm. And I was telling myself it was because when she slept, I was out of her life. And the second she woke up, she would have this mood of mine affecting her. And it wasn't fair. Again, there's that sense that you're looking at your life from the outside. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. And that you... Have you never done that? Did, well, of course I have, yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm asking the questions today. <laughs> uh, and also, that I mean, that speaks to someone who doesn't like them. So, no, it's not that you don't like yourself, it's that you don't like what you think you're doing to her. Well, I think sometimes, I mean, look, I've, I've never, I'm the patron of the Maytree, which is a suicide sanctuary, yes. and I'm interested in suicide. Uh, I think it's the ultimate in mental illness in a way. And I have had periods when I've felt very, very suicidal. Uh, I don't think I would ever, ever kill myself um, but I'd, but when I am, I ha- I'm having those sleepless nights I do think about it and and that is what and, and I think what that was I can't remember that no, you know course. that's the thing about a diary you keep the diary and then you just don't remember it but I, I know I've had times when I've thought I, I think you're just you, you're thinking look I, I'm really I don't want to be here I've had enough of the world uh, so you try and justify it to yourself so your rational mind would say, oh, oh no, the kids, the kids would be really upset. Your parents would be really upset. The dog would be really upset if you didn't come home every night. <laughs> uh, so actually, you, you, you persuade yourself, no, 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 do you know what? Look at her there without me in her life. She's happy. She, she's contented. Contented. Uh, but, you know, and, and, uh, and so, so that the, the yeah, I do, I, I do think that uh, the people have those thoughts. And I, and I do, listen, Fiona is an incredibly strong woman. Uh, and I think a lot of women, a lot of women wouldn't have been able to put up with my lifestyle, my well, moods, my changing. You know. Yes, except that 
what, what on paper you should not be the kind of man who talks so fluently and so honestly about mental health. On, on paper, you should really, because you're an alpha male, you're, you, you've got a ter- very short fuse. You, I mean, back in the day, you, you, you would use your fists as often as you'd perhaps use, well, not quite as often, but there are a couple of episodes that are, are well recorded. You, you should be the kind of guy that's, that's buttoned up and tightening the lid down all the time. Why aren't you? Uh, I don't know, really. I think, I don't know. I think maybe because of my brother who had schizophrenia. Yes. Uh, and actually, I always felt he got diagnosed in his early twenties, and I just—it was—it was—it was one of the most defining moments of my life going to see him when he was first diagnosed. And I think that I just felt part of the problem with it was the was the stigma. Uh, and also, I think when I when I, then when I had my own breakdown, and my brother was very funny about this because I mean he was like full on proper. You know, sure. bad schizophrenia, yes. but managed it really, really Just well. Voices and the voices, whole, yeah. the you know, he could be sitting here and those those cameras and that laptop things, snakes would be coming out of him oh, and he'd be God. fighting them. And yeah. you know, when it was bad, when he of stopped course. taking his medication, yes. and he'd say, oh, "God, look at you! You know, you've had one little poxy <laughs> breakdown. You go to the telly and talk. You come to a real <laughs> fucking expert." Uh, so he, that was a big part of it. But then, when I had my own breakdown. You know what newspaper the, the media world is like. Yes. Uh, word went round very, very quickly. I was this hot shot, high flying, youngest news editor in Fleet Street, and all sorts of stories went round. I was supposed to, apparently, one of them. I took all my clothes off in a lift and I made a lunge at Glenis Kinnock. That was one of them. Uh, all this stuff going around, crazy stuff. There was crazy stuff, yes. which I was done. I was arrested for and, and locked up and what have you. So it was all out there. And then, but of course, being a, you know, a journalist, it wasn't news. The minute I decided to jump ship, go over to the other side of the fence and work for Tony, people started to write about it. Uh, and I just, I took a decision. I just took a decision. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm just going to talk about it. And I've talked about it ever since. And there haven't been any downsides, really? Not really. No, no. Do you think you help other people? Do you think? I hope so. People say it does. Yeah. My mother didn't like it. Because, because gen- generation, our business is yeah, our business. and also I think, you know, and it's interesting, when I had my breakdown, uh, Fiona and her, Fiona came up to Scotland, where I was, and, and her dad, I didn't actually tell my parents for a while, because, and, and part of that was because they'd had the thing with my brother, which was, had been so difficult. And so they'd be terrified you were going down. And I think so, so I, so I just, and, 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 and also I kind of worked my way through it. Uh but then, you know, what I do now, you know, so I've just finished my fourth novel. The three of them really are about mental illness, mm-hmm. mental health. And mental, one's about the psychology of the sort of pathology of fame, I call it. Two are about, one's about alcoholism, one's about mental illness. So this is like, a, for me, I hope other people get something out of it, but I get something out of it. I feel better. I feel better when I feel like absolute shit and I can say it to somebody without feeling... Whereas a lot of people, when they feel like that, they feel worse when they tell people. Because, and that's the stigma, and it's the taboo, and it's, it's feeling you're letting somebody down. Shame. Yeah, it's a shame. Now, if you had cancer, yeah. you'd be really upset. Your family would be upset, but you wouldn't be ashamed of it. Sure. Whereas actually, there, was, there did used to be stigma for cancer, the big C. We didn't call it cancer. And I think because we, people were terrified of it, because they knew so little about it. They knew it. so little, yeah. And likewise with this, we, we actually don't, you know, but we, we, and 
mental illness, research, it's the back of the queue, services, it's the back of the queue. The politi- the campaign is working and the politicians all say it's a priority. They're just not putting the money but there. But the yet. money's not there and yeah. the understanding's not there. And talk is cheap. Why, why so, I don't know if dismissive is quite fair, but certainly not enthusiastic about the prospect of going to Alcoholics Anonymous. You mentioned that in 2012. Because the breakdown, you, you associated with alcohol. Yeah, I did. Uh, and funny enough, I've got a son, Callum, who's, uh, he goes to AA most days. Uh, he had a really bad spell five years ago. He's, he's not had a drink since. Uh, and he really gets a lot out of it. I just never did. I don't know. Just what? for personal taste type thing, was, not, not uh, a matter of principle. You don't no, have a problem no, with no, a prayer of serenity. No, The man no, that inspired Malcolm no, Tucker not at all. doing a prayer of serenity. Not no, all. all right. <laughs> no, in fact, I think the prayer of serenity is excellent. I yes. think the sentiment is fantastic. Uh, but I got through it. In my own way, I guess, and, and I was determined to do that. Uh, and and also, I do have a drink every now and again, though, which which I after know. thirteen years dry yeah. was it? Yeah. What's the phrase you used? Dry drunkish. What does that mean? When you say you and Roy Keane, after you, you you connect with Roy Keane a little yeah. without without I mean knowing him well, but you just see similar traits I in do. his personality. I do, I, I do yeah. And you, you write that you're both a bit dry drunkish. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, it means that you. Looking out for you know, the, 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 there's something, there's some addict addiction going on in you all the time, right? Uh, like an obsessive type, addictive, yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, and, and I think, does he know you think this about him? Uh, didn't you write to him? I don't know. If, I wrote to him, I'll tell you what I wrote to him was when he, and funny enough, his agent at yeah. one point sounded me out about ghosting his, uh, his biography. Uh, I wrote to him after he got the boot, yeah. From Fergie, no, and 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 I only had that story from Alex Ferguson's side, uh, but I just I don't know why I felt an I felt an empathy, and I, I wrote to him twice actually. I think I wrote to him when he got uh, when he quit the World Cup, yeah. and I wrote to him when he uh, left United, and it was basically just to say, look, I, I you know tell me to get lost, it's none of my business, but. I, I, th- I think I know some of the traits. And, it was and I- to give him a few thoughts on the pitfalls for obsessive, addictive personalities leaving an all-consuming job oh, for an uncertain go. future. That's exactly what it was. What pitfalls? Uh, the ones, Some of the ones that I fell into. Like, for example, one of the worst depressions of my life was after I left number 10. Was it? Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and also the pitfalls I've, that I'm still struggling with in terms of just constantly trying to get the right balance between all these different conflicts going on, uh, but Roy, I, I, you know, he, he's an amazing guy, isn't he? He, he was. Uh, he came to because he lives not far from Burnley. I was at Burnley game last season, and uh, I, I had a cup of tea with him at half time. And Stan Turner, who's one of our old managers, he was there as well. And we we're just sitting on a cup of tea at half time. Right, it wasn't it wasn't that great a game. I think we were winning one 0 <laughs> No kidding. And Roy Keane, Roy Keane, starts. Talking about these, not our team, the fullbacks on the other team, like with a passion and a vehemence that is just beyond belief, and how much you know they're they're fucking disgrace and they should they they, they shouldn't be. They, he should take them off. He should take them. He really really cares. Really bad. Yeah. And I said, I said, well, why do you care? Yeah. He said, it it's just offends me. It offends everything that I believe in. And uh, you get that. I do get that, but I felt with that, I just thought, you know, that's his demon. Yeah. But I think the thing about the demon 
this is the argument I have with my psychiatrist that he's he's not so sure about. <laughs> I say I, I say that the things that he calls my demon, mm. they might be the things that make me able to do some of the things that I've been able to do. Uh, so that's a good thing. Yes, it's controlling it, I guess, because you, yeah. you can't but really. I mean, to, to, I've mentioned Malcolm Tucker; it's a throwaway comparison, although it's a, a I mean, a ostensibly accurate one. You, you, you have, I could, you have to be a bastard to get the stuff done, but obviously being a bastard has a downside to it. Yeah, but I don't, well. think, I don't think I was a bastard, you see. I was, I was uh, never mo- a bastard. Mo- most was, political editors would disagree. I don't know. But you see, no? I, I didn't, they weren't my... my They're not the your... most important people to me were my team. Yes. And I wasn't a bastard to them. I don't think I was a bastard to most of the political editors. Uh, I think I was tough in terms of communicating what we wanted to communicate because, you know, if you don't do that with our media, they'll just roll you over. How bad is the media now compared to when when, when they start in ninety seven? The Daily Mail was powerful, but this almost I mean, we've talked together about this before, and we sing from similar hymn sheets. But there's a there's a sociopathic malevolence at the heart of Fleet Street now in the in the in the guise of Paul Dacre, really that arguably is doing untold damage to to our democratic process. Uh, a fairly leading question. I'd probably agree with every word of it. Yeah. Uh, and also, I'm you know I think it's. I think power is the wrong word for these guys. I think they have an influence on the on the tone of the public debate. So I say, for example, with regard to Brexit, uh, in the end, people made their own judgment and they voted in the way that they did. And I, I don't think you could say the papers swayed that. I think Gove and Johnson ultimately were the people who... With that bedrock of 30 right. years of comical exactly. negativity. Exactly. Yeah. That, I think, is what laid the ground for having the referendum at all. Absolutely. Uh, and likewise, you know, I thought Jeremy Corbyn was quite a good crack. He made his speech, you know, last time he did 14 pages slugging me off the day before the election. Next time he did 28. Ed Miliband wouldn't have done that. Ed Miliband did take on Murdoch, though. Not in editorial sense, was it? Wasn't well, it more- he did. He actually, he was, you know, if you remember, he really was the one who drove to get the Leveson inquiry. And uh, he, he took, if I had, I, I was involved in the discussions with him about that and he knew it was a big, it was a political risk. And of course, the Labour Party, part of the, the Corbyn sort of mantra about us is that, you know, we flew halfway around the world to Australia to court Rupert Murdoch and da, 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 and we did. Uh, and we did that, as I would say, as a kind of neutralising thing, sure. trying to sort of uh, stop their claws from being quite as sharp as they'd been, say, with Michael Foote. And it worked. Kid, and it worked to some extent. But I think we spent too much time talking about them and worrying about them. I still think politicians who have their own strategy, who take that strategy forward. I still think even in Britain, with our media as it is, you can get that through. The vision thing. Yeah, and also a sort of a, a pragmatic approach to it. Uh, I think that Tony did, you know, I think one of the reasons the press still go after Tony the way they did is actually, you know, they, they loved him for a few years. They then hated him for a few years, but they never really got him. No. And they're still trying to get him after the event. There's a degree of fascination. Yeah, but I think, and I, you use the word sociopathic. I I do think, I've said before about the mail, I think it's the very, very worst of British values, pre- thinking they're the best. Yes. Uh, I, for the life of me, cannot understand why British Airways give it out on their plane, given that they're meant to be sort of projecting an important part of Britain. The mail's horrible. Different image to the world. It's horrible. And, and, and it's, you know, it's horrible about women. And and this, this you know, this, this idea that because they... Put a very did one very brave front page calling a bunch of thugs and murderers, mm. uh, and actually to get you, out of jail free card for yeah, twenty five years exactly. And if yeah. you go through that story, they didn't really campaign 
on the racial side of things. They never took on the police uh, for the stuff that they would do. So they, look, Dacre's a, he was a waste of time talking. He was a horrible human being and there you go. Irredeemable. There he is. But I think, that the, I think the other factors now in relation to media culture uh, are far more complicated. I, I, I still don't think any of us have got our head around what is the impact of social media. No. I, it is absolutely staggering to me. I've just interviewed, interviewed Gary Kasparov recently. We talk about it. It's staggering. And Al Gore, I talked to him about this, that when I was a journalist covering Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, if there had been the slightest suggestion of Russians getting involved in the American election, that would have been landslide time for whoever was up against the person the Russians were helping. But just absolutely no Nobody quibbling, no questions. Why is that? I mean, did you... Did I think it's to do with the polarisation in American politics so that they just, as long as it damages your opponent, I don't care where it comes Anything from. Anything goes. But it would, I mean, you could even look at McCarthyism, but even the, the, yeah. the sort of less toxic elements of that anti-Russian fear, it, it's quite, you're right, it's absolutely breathtaking that the notion that the Kremlin delivered the White House or delivered Donald Trump to the White certainly House... Certainly helped him. ...doesn't fry on his core or his base at all. No, not at all, not at all. And, but also, including... Uh, and the thing about the point Kasparov made about Putin, it's not a left-right thing for this, for him. He is just as happy to have Marine Le Pen... Sure. ...Delinka, Jeremy Corbyn. I'm not saying Jeremy Corbyn is a... You know, but he... But, but disruptors. Yeah, he, he he would much rather have... Uh, so, like, in Germany, the German election... Putin essentially was 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 helping Die Linke mm. and alternative for Germany mm. because they or any any big international alliance like the European Union or NATO or international norms and laws they're a threat to him uh, and I think with Trump I think my big thing about Trump is that I think he's jealous of Putin yeah. because he sees how much easier it is if you can totally control your parliament totally control your media you can rake off money left right and centre. And get away with it, mm. and and the people sort of know, but don't. Object. But they don't. They don't object. Um, towards the end of the diary, the, the new volume, and we've kind of addressed this already. But it, it, you, you talk with your psychiatrist, David, about whether you could apply psychiatry to a society. Yeah. Um, when you started the conversation with him, you were talking about celebrity culture. You just some astonishing little vignettes in there and throwaways, like when Jade Goody was being pursued for yeah. alleged racism on Big Brother, and 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 that that, that obviously was very front and centre at the time. Um, the world's Tony, changed, and both Tony and Gordon felt the need to go out and say something about can, it. Can you quite? I mean, it's incredible. It's crazy. In current context, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, a yeah. reality television star would be national. Yeah. I suppose because reality television was new. But if you had to. Provide some sort of psychiatric psychiatric diagnosis of society now. What would you be most concerned about? Uh, I think we're becoming very dysfunctional. Uh, I think our politics is quite dysfunctional. I think our economic systems are quite dysfunctional. Uh, and I do think that on the one hand, the kind of so-called democratisation of social media in that it gives everybody a platform, it gives everybody the ability to... to expressive view but I, I do think there's been a, a kind of chaotic element to it that none of us have really got our heads around uh, I've just been actually because I've, I've got to do a thing with Charlie Brooker and I've just been watching some of those Black Mirror mm. programmes and uh, I mean you know that it's just it's that the, they sort of what's what I think is brilliant about them is that they 
the stories are sort of far-fetched, but they but you you get drawn into them because they feel actually quite real. They're just that little one step away from plausible, aren't yeah. they? That's yeah, the astonishing just, thing about them. You could just and see. The, um, didn't you have the Conservative politician copulating with a pig's head long before long the... Long before the Cameron book came out, yeah. <laughs> and what was amazing about that that one, I watched that one, and uh, I hadn't seen any of these because no. I'm not a big box set person at all. Oh, I know uh, that as well. So it's another part of your, <laughs> your tensions with Fiona, isn't it? What does it you say? People who gorge on box sets are retired from life. Yeah. How to win over the room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I want, so, so there's this one where, you know, so you see this and you can, where all around the country, as it's building up to this event, Willy won't he? Yes. Do it. Do, do it with the pig. <laughs> uh, everybody just, you know, watching the television, looking at their phones talking about it. Yes, of course. And reacting. Yes. So there's there's this scene where the Prime Minister comes on the screen, walking into the room where the pig is, and people just go, yeah, here we go, like it's a football match to start, they're coming out the tunnel or something. And then as it develops, you see people just sort of, in a way, absorbing their own reactions with a bit of horror. Uh, But I think, and and I, I am, I try... Like the the Jay Goody thing, like the I think I think it's in this book where we were downstairs with Tessa Jowell, and she was watching one of the first Pop Idols or yeah. X Factors, and she's constantly voting for this bin man called Andy, and I'm saying, what the fuck are you doing? This is destroying democracy and about the things that matter. And they all thought I was just po faced, yeah. but I think this thing about you know that's what voting's about. Like you know you like something, you rate something. Uh, and so the, the another of Charlie Brooker's things is this thing about you know you we, we, we can permanently sort of electronically rate other people Constantly. as we meet them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it is actually just a, a nudge and a wink away from. Yeah, so it's so real. it's uh, now have we always have have people always felt like this about big change? Probably, but I think it's the pace of change now. You know the fact that. You, you talked about how communication has changed. I mean, I can remember as the one of Neil Kinnock's election, elections, the first time I had a mobile phone. Yeah. And it was the size of a suitcase. And people on the road, I remember being up in Yorkshire once, and the bus stopped, and Neil went off to do a little speech. And there was a bigger crowd of people coming out to watch all of us on our all of these phones coming out of these yeah. little boxes, right? <laughs> to see the leader of the opposition. Yeah, because it was like this is, and, and, and whereas now we can, we all have them, and they're the size of the palm of our hand, yeah. and we can get anywhere in the world on it. We can do thousands and millions of things, and I don't think we really have worked through. Work that, in progress. What well, gives you hope? I don't, I don't want to end on a bleak note. I don't want to end on a. Uh, I think what gives me hope is that my kids are pretty smart uh, and I think their generation's pretty smart uh, and I think that I sort of think they'll work it out but I, I, I don't have much hope about our generation sorting it out for now. Uh, I think the other thing that gives me hope is that uh, Burnley are doing really well. Uh, no, I think I think the... We're actually, even though the world is does feel like it's a terrible mess, and Trump, for me, just and Brexit have these terrible shadows over sure. it all the time at the moment. But we're actually killing each other a lot less than we used to. Yeah, uh, we're better educated than ever. We're living longer, which is, you know, pretty good. The the state in which a lot of people are living latterly is maybe not so good, but that'll probably work itself out eventually. 
so I'm sort of I'm 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 sort of optimistic despite everything. And more volumes to come. Forever and ever. Is it? Well, I might as well keep going. Well, is it not? I mean, with the greatest of respect, you mentioned what a massive event the first one was, where yeah. the Today programme ripped up yeah. decades of convention yeah. to continue the crashing through the pips and the news and everything. Yeah. Presumably, now you've left Downing Street in this one. Yeah. So how interested are people going to be in the interviewing Lance Armstrong years? Given that they've already, if, well, I mean, they might already have read the book full of the interviews. So They might. Well, the, not, the, the, other, the other one them. that's a bit surreal about this one is that I'm actually writing about the process of, of producing writing. the diaries. Yes, I mean, of course. Mad. Yes. <laughs> no, I can see that, that, that but they tick over nicely. And uh, I'll tell you the other thing. I said that thing about, you know, looking back. I like the fact that, so like when I was living it, uh, so my daughter, Grace, she was a baby when I started working for Tony. So she's really known wow. nothing else. And, you know, I like the fact that they're big, thick books. Uh, I think books will always be around, whatever happens. I think you'll always, you know, there'll always be a place for books. And when I'm long gone, there'll be, you know, she gets the whole thing up there and... You know, her kids and grandchildren and all that. I think it's... I, I like that thought. Uh, and the, listen, it's like anything. If people want to read them, they want to read them. If they don't, they don't. It's entirely up to them. But they do, they do fine. It's funny, we've come full circle because at the beginning, when we were talking about happiness and, and your, um, your unhappiness with the notion of contentment, you yeah. talked then about looking back on a life and that's what happiness is, feeling that you've... And you just said exactly the same thing again in yeah. a slightly different way. It's, is it, it's posterity that you're talking about. No, it's not posterity. It is, a bit, it is posterity. Is it? Yeah. It's a pompous-sounding no, word. It doesn't mean it's a pompous yeah. thought to have. I do think that uh, maybe it's because you're older, because I'm older. My brother's died. Yeah. Two parents have died. A lot of my close friends have died. You do think about it more. Uh, and it's not about legacy, because I mean, when it comes to legacy... You know, very, very few people have real legacy. Sure. When it comes to p politics, you're talking about a handful. Mm. And you, in, in a government, you're talking about the prime minister and maybe, you know, like, for example, Nye Bevan did the National Health Service and, and, and that's his legacy. But I think with... Uh, I just think with, 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 with me, I think maybe actually it's to do with atheism. It's to do with the fact that I don't believe in God and I think a way to... I'm not remotely a saint, but I'm, I think a way to stay... You know, on parameters that are kind of, you know, livable with in, in yourself and those around you actually is actually to think, you know what, it's it's about it's about how it all feels towards the end that counts. I really believe that. I really believe that people spend too much time worrying about whether they're happy now, whether they're having a good time now. That whole instant gratification thing, I'm not really into that at all. I'm into thinking, right, is this a, is this worth is this worth doing for the long term? Is this worth sticking with? Is this worth getting through? I think resilience is one of the most important qualities any of us have. And is there one big challenge left? Or well, there or might be. There might be. But the only time I've got cl even got close to not just interviewing Lance Armstrong or not yeah. just being asked to come was actually <laughs> to do with the Olympics. Yes. Uh, but in, in the end, it didn't happen. Uh, you mean a, a, a job in a the job. organization? Yeah, yeah, and and uh, but but that didn't happen. So, and now you know, I, like at the moment, I'm editor at large of the New European. Yes, very quite, good paper. Thank you. Mm. Quite busy. You should write for it. Quite busy on that. Uh, I do these interviews for GQ. This is my, I've just finished my fourteenth book. 
I'm still out on the sort of speaking, teaching, lecturing, charity, consultancy. I work with about four different governments in the Balkans. I do all this different stuff, uh, which for a lot of people... Would be an end in itself. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But because you're identified as having done something quite big, people think you should do. And, and, And like I say, full circle, I do feel that conflict all the time. Yes. And maybe it's just something I'll never resolve. Maybe, maybe. You know, here's the thing. I think it's in this book. David Jiddler, the footballer. Amazing how... Because this is the soccer age years as well. So Jiddler saw me do an interview where he said, I said in this interview, uh, I know that I will always regret the fact that I didn't stand for Parliament in my own right. I said that. So he phoned me up. And he said, listen, if you know you're always going to regret something, you know what to do. And I said, no, but the thing is, I think I'd regret it if I did it as well. That is the, that is, that is the, the sort of torture. The kernel at the heart of the conundrum that is Alistair Campbell. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm, I'm joined again by Dion Fanning, one of Joe's top operatives who, who was sort of pouring through the Alistair Campbell book in the hope of spotting the stuff that I'd missed, of which, Dion, there was plenty. So thank you for that. He's, we talked about Joe uh, Russell Brand last week, and I was looking for parallels on the addiction side of it and on the um, that, that conflict between wanting to be in the public eye and not wanting to be in the public eye. I think what I find most interesting about Alistair Campbell, he doesn't give a fig what people think of him. He doesn't seem to give a fig what people think of him. And I would associate anxiety with worrying too much about what people think. Yeah, I remember him reading a line of Campbell's about crisis management once where he said, you know, you must always get to the worst part of the story as quickly as you can. And it kind of reads, he kind of lives his life like that. You know, let's get it all out there so you can't have any. And he is like, it was was fascinating between Russell Brand last week and and, and Campbell because, you know, they, they, they do it very different ways. They are both driven by an awful lot of same stuff and Campbell talking about that need for you know uh, to be to be involved to be yes. important yes. to be dragged yes. into that stuff uh, but he's he's always on the kind of front foot whereas Brand is he's always on the attack yes. in 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 uh, did you find that with yes. not, not in a not in a combative way necessarily I've interviewed him before and I think he's mellowing over the years I probably should have said this while he was in the room in case he objected but I he he, he does there's a couple of times when he wanted to, you could tell he wanted to start asking the questions rather than answering them. But it's not a self-defense mechanism, is it? It's almost as if he wants to, if, almost as if he wants to be in the driving seat always and driving towards this astonishing levels of revelation, which for, for a man of his sort of generation and and background is quite refreshing, actually. You know, it's 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 fantastic. Like it, it, the way he talks about about it, you know, as he said, everything about it. The, like, that's uh, what he said at twenty age of twenty nine goes into fairly grisly detail about the nature of his breakdown which is something I know about and I've read about but again it's it's very disarming when somebody like Alice the Campbell is so upfront about being fallible vulnerable poorly and his relationship with Roy Keane that was great wasn't it <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to get caught between those two no which you which side of the argument would you pick <laughs> there <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> whoever spoke last I think I'd be on the side of I, I enjoyed that I like him a lot but I do wonder whether if we'd done the interview in 2001, it would have had a very different (laughs) flavour to it. (laughs) You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.